When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 94, and today we are talking about books released on February 14th, 2017, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with my fellow podcast, Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, hello. I'm coming to you from the planet Hoth. Oh, I know. It's like hard to believe that we're sharing space today virtually because you got like a foot and a half of snow yesterday while I was sitting outside in 80 degree weather. It's crazy. We got two feet between Tuesday and Thursday of last week and then another two feet overnight. So hi, I live in Hoth now. Are you in a blanket fort? No. Oh, I feel like you should be in a blanket fort. Well, right now we're talking, so... That's true. And it's Galentine's Day. So we get to celebrate Galentine's Day together. Yes. The best. It is the best. Um, We have big books this week and you have one. Well, you have two this week that were like on Liberty's books of 2017 list. So I'm just going to not take up any more time before you get to start talking. Yeah, basically my first pick, I read this in March of 2016 and was pretty sure it will be my favorite book of 2017 back then, and I'm still very sure that it will be, Um, and that is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. Um, If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that I worship him. He is amazing. And as crazy as it sounds, this is actually his first novel. He's been publishing for years and years, but it's always been collections of stories or novellas, and he had a kid's book. This is actually his first novel. Um, before I read this book, the first thing I had to do was look up the word bardo, because I had no idea what it meant. And it's, uh, used in Tibetan Buddhism. It's a state of existence between death and rebirth, varying in length according to a person's conduct in life and manner of or age at death. And it plays into the story. Lincoln, in the title, is referring to Willie Lincoln, the Abraham Lincoln's son, uh, who died at age 10 while his father was in office in the White House, um, because... They were at the White House. They couldn't bury him at home in Illinois, so he was housed temporarily in a crypt in the cemetery across from the White House. Um, And I learned about this uh, because I watched an interview with George Saunders. He was saying that he was riding through D.C. with his wife's cousin, and she told him the story about how... While Willie's body was housed in that crypt, Lincoln was seen entering the crypt, and Saunders' mind just started working from there, like, what that would be like for him to go in there and see his son, and he turned it into this story about Willie's time in the crypt and the ghosts of the people that he encounters while he's there. Um, They're all very confused because children, their spirits don't linger very long, usually. They're usually in and gone uh, after burial, and Willie's body is is, um, interred, and there he's still there and then they see Lincoln come and visit him and it's just it's this beautiful heartbreaking utterly original story 
Um, it, it's, it's, it's kind of weird to call it a novel because he has taken any notion of the novel and just thrown it out the window. He's just re- Saunders has just rebuilt this to the novel to suit his genius. Um, it's almost like reading a play the way that it's set up. It's so incredible. I just, it, it blew my mind. I could not get over it. Um, and, and I have to say, like, it's very strange. And I have heard from some people that have read it since then, uh, since I read it. And some of them were like, this is a little too weird for me, but I am glad that I read it. I completely respect what he did. You know, how he set this up is amazing and his brain is amazing. Um, it's, but I absolutely loved it. Like I said, I think it's going to be my favorite novel of the year. Again, it's called Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders. Got a killer review from Colson Whitehead in the yeah, New York yeah. Times also. Oh, he's so brilliant. It's, I want to lick his frontal lobe. It's amazing. <laughs> Just genius. Oh, Liberty. I don't even know what to say. So we'll just move on. My first pick <laughs> my first pick this week is called Tell Me Everything You Don't Remember. It's by Christine Young Oak Lee. Uh, this is a memoir. When she was 33, she had a stroke. Um, she didn't know that that's what it was at first. She was out running errands with her husband. She started sort of seeing things and feeling really weird. She sits down on the sidewalk and he says, like, I have to take you home. We're not going to finish running our errands if you feel this way. She, like, takes a nap wakes up, still feels weird. She's having trouble finding the right words, uh, but like isn't able to put her finger on exactly what this strange feeling is. And she sits down and writes a blog post about how like strange and untethered she's feeling. And some of her friends are like, this is worrisome. You should go to the hospital. Um, so she goes to the hospital and after a couple rounds of tests, they finally figure out that the thing that had happened to her was that she had had a stroke um, and that she didn't have any classic symptoms of strokes, uh, which is why she didn't identify it right off and neither did the doctors. And this is like over the course of a couple of days before they realize that that's what has happened and that the stroke has, you know, had by now it's had effect on her that can't be reversed. Um, so it's, it affects her short term memory. Um, she forgets how to do basic things like, you know, how to make dinner for herself. She puts on water to boil for pasta. And then the next time she goes to the stove, the pan is empty and smoking because it's been going forever and she just forgot about it. She goes grocery shopping and only buys one thing because it's an item that she uh, recognized before, but she doesn't know what to, what to do really. Um, and she has to relearn you know, basic life skills. She also has to relearn herself. She has a lot of memories that she can't recover. Um, and she starts reaching out to build friendships with older people who have also experienced brain injury. It's, you know, not very common to have strokes, uh, in your thirties. And so she doesn't really have a peer group of people for support. So she kind of finds herself having these unexpected, unlikely friendships. Uh, it affects her marriage. It affects her career. She goes to get an MFA and like writes stories and attends workshops that she later has no memory of. Uh, and the book sort of moves between the the lived experience of it and some of the medical realities uh, of the things that uh, her doctors tried to tease out of sort of the nitty gritty of what happened in her brain, which parts were affected and what those parts are responsible for in our cognition and sort of how that all plays out. But the bigger question of it is really like, who are we when the narrative of our lives is no longer wholly available to us? Like uh, she is taking apart who is she when she can't remember all of her memories. She doesn't know all of the things that happened to her. Uh, it's easy for, easier for her to remember certain kinds of memories than others. And so she starts to feel kind of emotionally 
lopsided. Uh, and th- that's a problem that she will probably always have in her life to some degree is, uh, is that, that sense of identity sort of just fell apart. Uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, if you liked uh, Brain on Fire by, is it Susanna Kahalen? Yes. Yeah. Um, this is kind of in that same vein of, you know, young, relatively young person has a very remarkable medical event, uh, and they're, and it changes their life in a way that like, you know, old people's lives are of course affected by having strokes as well, but we consider that to be common or typical. And so you don't get books about it, which perhaps there should be. I imagine that it takes apart your identity in that same way. Uh, but uh, she really goes, I thought, very thoughtfully to the heart of uh, not just the physical experience, but really how a th- an experience like uh, having a stroke when you're that young and having a traumatic brain injury uh, that's permanent as a result of it can spin out into, it, it touches every aspect of your life, including who you think you are. Uh, it's really, I'm almost finished with it. That's my caveat. So maybe, hopefully it doesn't fall apart in like the last 50 pages, uh, but I've really enjoyed it. It's very thoughtful. Again, it's called Tell Me Everything You Don't Remember, The Stroke That Changed My Life by Christine Young Oakley. It reminds me of a great book I read uh, many years ago called My Stroke of Insight, A Brain Scientist's mm, yeah. Personal Journey um, by Jill Taylor. Did you get a chance to to read that? I remember it. I'm not, I don't yeah, remember she if I was, actually read it She not. was 37. She's a Harvard-trained brain scientist, and she had a massive stroke in the left side of her brain. Um, and it was just like her observations as a brain scientist, like while she's having this stroke, while she was recovering from it, and like what it was like to have that like logic part of your brain completely shut down and sort of just experience the right brain and like you know the emotional like side of of your being and it's it's fantastic you know yeah. it's, it plus all the insight you know since she's trained for that it's pretty cool i mean cool <laughs> I and like I, that's to... so sad that it happened to her but still like amazing you know yeah so would you like to hear about our first sponsor I sure would. Someday you're going to go, no. (laughs) I don't know. They pay us to say say these sponsors, but maybe I'll just decide that I don't want to hear about your next book pick sometime. No. (laughs) I would prefer not to. We're just going to Bartleby our way through an episode sometime. (laughs) Our first sponsor is The Clairvoyance. Uh, coming out from Henry Holt and Company, it's published. Uh, excuse me, it was written by Karen Brown. Uh, the Clairvoyance is a modern gothic ghost tale filled with psychological thrills that follows the life of an unusual young woman. Ever since she was a child, Martha May could see ghosts around her family home on the sea. Now, a young woman, she desperately hopes to escape her past by fleeing inland to a small college town. Martha is swept up in a new life: young love, distance from a dysfunctional family, and unobservant of news of a disappeared woman. Until the missing woman appears outside Martha's apartment in a down coat, her hair coated with ice. Here's where I make my noise. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so it says, uh, Martha May, the clairvoyant protagonist of the clairvoyance, has been likened to characters of Shirley Jackson or Daphne du Maurier. I realize like I've never actually said her name out loud before. That's right. I think that's right, but I don't know. It is right. This modern day ghost story has elements of psychological intrigue and gripping suspense to keep the reader guessing. Is Martha crazy or the only sane one? Oh. Tons of fun. I like a haunting Sounds book. Good. Has a beautiful cover too. Yeah, it's really it reminds me of Sherbert. <laughs> <laughs> it does when I look yeah, at it, it kind of looks like uh like Sherbert through an Insta- a nice Instagram lens. Yeah, it's very, like, it's soft very and pastel and, and pretty. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah, it's very eye-catching. And we will have a link 
to that in the show notes. So thank you to them for sponsoring. All right. What's next? My next book is American Street by Ebi Zaboy. And it's a fantastic young adult novel. It's about 15-year-old Fabiola. She It starts with her flying from Haiti with her mother. Um, they are going to visit her mother's sister in Detroit. Fabiola was born in the U.S. when she was a baby, but shortly after, her mother moved back to Haiti. Um, so she is a U.S. Fabiola is a U.S. citizen. Uh, when they get to JFK, they are told that her mother is not going to be allowed into the country. Fabiola can come in, but her mother is not allowed. And not only that, they take her mother away and send her to a detention center in New Jersey. Um, but she's she desperately wants Fabiola to go on to Detroit. You know, she wants a new life for her. And so Fabiola gets on the plane, and she is picked up at the airport by her Aunt Jo and her three cousins. Or she's picked up by her three cousins to go to her Aunt Jo's house, I should say. Um, and her mother is, is, like I said, sent off to this detention center. Uh, so Phoebe doesn't really... Uh, not Phoebe. Uh, Fabiola doesn't really know her cousins. She has kept in touch with them uh, on the phone when she was little and then through the internet, like on Facebook and stuff, but she's never actually met them. So being alone with them is a whole new experience for her. There's two girls who are her own age and then an older cousin, and their customs are different. Her aunt insists that she only speak English, even though um, they can they can all speak French. Like They insist that she speaks English. Um, and there's really nothing there that reminds her of home, except there is a homeless man that they call Badleg, who sits in front of where they live, their apartment. Um, and she, he reminds uh, Fabiola of the Haitian legend about the man who sits with the cane at the crossroads and helps people see the way. So she talks to him through the window at night um, and prays to him in hopes that you know he will help uh, her mother come back to her. And so she has nothing to do while she's waiting for her mother to be released, except she starts school. She goes to school, um, meets girls, you know, her own age, makes friends. She meets uh, one of her cousin's boyfriends named Dre. He's a terrible person. He's awful to Donna. Um, he's mixed up in a whole bunch of bad business, and Fabiola is really not not happy about that. Um, and during the course of, you know, a few months, she Fabiola is approached by a stranger with a proposition, she says that she can get her mother out of the detention center, but she has to do this one thing, which I'm not going to tell you because that would spoil the book. Um, so now she's kind of torn between her loyalties to her new family and, you know, she, because she really wants to get her mother out of the detention center. Um, it's absolutely wonderful. I read this book so quickly, it, it just flew by. It's fantastic. The The repertoire between the the girls is is great. Um, it's also incredibly heartbreaking, the ending. I was like, oh my goodness. But it's so good. Again, it's called American Street by E.B. Zaboy. I've had my eye on that one, and E.B. Uh, has been a Book Riot contributor, so we should just give like a full disclosure slash that doesn't have anything to do with this. No, I, I completely <laughs> forgotten that until you said it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my next pick is one that I have been meaning to read forever because uh, you made it sound so compelling when it came out in hardcover last year. It's yeah, Girls yeah. on Fire by Robin Wasserman. It's out in paperback this week. And man, like I just really wanted to ignore all of my adult responsibilities this weekend and just read this book. Uh, it begins, it's about teenage girls. So this is uh 
Robin Wasserman's first novel for adults. Uh, it begins after the golden boy of a small town called Battle Creek in Pennsylvania kills himself in the woods. Uh, Hannah Dexter is one of the main characters, and she finds herself terrorized by uh, the dead boy Craig's girlfriend, Nikki, who is you know, popular but like super bored with her status as the popular girl in charge. Uh, Hannah quickly uh, finds that she is adopted by Lacey, who's a cool like new girl in town. She's into Nirvana. She wants to like think about the things that really matter in life and read Kerouac and talk about Nietzsche and you know not care about the things that teenagers care about. It's the early 90s. Grunge is nascent. Lacey is super into Nirvana uh, and has the combat boots and the flannel and is on like the early edge of that. She's edgy. Uh, and Hannah finds herself totally enamored of this new friend that she just thinks is like way too cool for her. She doesn't really know what's going on there, but she's willing to just take it that this girl wants to be her friend. Uh, Lacey dubs Hannah Dex, uh, gives her a new name based, you know, shortening her last name. And that's the beginning of a very intense friendship that redefines Hannah's identity. It's a friendship based on rebelling against everyone, uh, you know, rebelling against the man, against their parents, against the expectations of their small town, and basically shunning everyone but each other. Uh, But there are things about Lacey that Dex doesn't know. And uh, they are tied up in that boy's death out in the woods. Uh, They have family problems. They have typical teenage bad decision making. Uh, And all of this, since it's set in the early 90s, is also tied in with the panic about like Satanism and devil worship that was wild back then. If you grew up like in, if you came of age in the late 80s or early 90s, uh, like some of the hosts of this show did, uh, you will remember that this was a thing that like people were just convinced that that there were just teenagers all over the place worshiping the devil uh, and that that was why grunge was popular and everyone was wearing black and some of us te- were though i mean they're not wrong that's <laughs> true <laughs> Um, NPR called the book brutally gorgeous but i think the reverse uh, would be equally applicable it's kind of gorgeously brutal uh, and unless you were a lacy or a nikki the like the mean popular girl in your high school life if you have been a teenage girl you will recognize probably how lucky you were to have escaped without becoming a dex or being in a dex's position or you'll remember what it was like uh when a friendship that you thought was basically a gift from heaven that was going to save you uh, turned out to potentially be very dangerous. It is so compelling. It's like addictive. Their friendship has that intense quality that teenage girl friendships have. Uh, They're like all up in each other's lives. They make terrible decisions. No one has any boundaries. And I just could not stop reading it. It's so, so good and so insightful. Like Robin Wasserman super remembers what it was like to be a teenage girl. Uh, and she's bring, she brings adult insight to it for adult readers. And I just find that to be, it's an, it's an amazing package. I'm really sorry that I didn't read this in 2016. So it could be one of my favorite books of the year, uh, but it's out in paperback now. And again, it's called Girls on Fire. I love like the different ways that people come into books. And I'm pretty sure I had mentioned on the internet somewhere that I had a Kurt Cobain tattoo and the publisher was like, I have a book for you. Oh, that's and I was funny. Like, Yay. <laughs> and I loved it. And speaking of loving books, let me tell you yes. about my next one. Now, Perfect segue. I know that <laughs> I speak for a lot of people when I say like whenever I go somewhere or I'm in a new situation, I always look around and think, 
if if stuff goes bad, who am I going to eat first? Right? Like everybody does that, right? <laughs> Actually, it's like your normal reactions like like you go grocery shopping, you're like, who would I eat first? There's a bit about that in my house. <laughs> <laughs> a bit about your in what? So Bob does this bit where like in the born identity, I think it's in the born identity, like when Jason Bourne is first coming to and realizing that he like has these spy powers, they're in a diner and he's looking around and he's like, then how come I can look at these people and I know like which one is most likely to have a gun in their car and which one is sitting closest to the exit. And somehow Bob turned it into a joke about like always being able to identify who would be the most delicious in any situation. (laughs) So that's like a thing that we say to each other in random, like out in public in random places. Like, but have you figured out who is the most delicious? Well, then see, at least there's two of us in the world and we... We are, you know, besties, so it works out. So, it does. Um, but leading up to that... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, did I squash no, your joke? No, not at all. Um, but it, it ties in. The f- book I'm going to talk about, I mentioned on the highly anticipated book show. I mean, I pronounced the author's last name wrong, I believe, so I'm going to do it right now. It is Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History by Bill Shutt. I think I said shoot last time, and I'm very Sorry. Um, it's the first book I read in 2017. Like, I saved it for that purpose because I knew I would love it. He is also the author of a book called Dark Banquet, which is about creatures that drink blood. He is my soulmate. Um, and I could talk about this book for hours, but I'm just going to try and just tone it down and keep it to a little bit right now. Um, because, but I think people should read it. Like, it's, it's like, ew, gross, but it's so fascinating. Um, you have to look past, like, what he calls, he says, I know this has, like, a high ick factor, but... It's fascinating. Come with me. And, and he's great. He's he's very funny. He's very Mary Roaches. Um, and he starts in the intro talking about, like, why he was interested in cannibalism. Um, one of the things is that can- crimes involving cannibalism are on the rise. But, like, on the rise meaning a handful, haha, as opposed to a couple. Um, and he wanted to know, are people humans opposed to cannibalism biologically? Like, are we just, like... No, gross, we don't eat people, or culturally, that we've been told, no, gross, you shouldn't eat people. Um, So he researched a bunch of different animals, different creatures, and he wrote this very funny and entertaining book. Um, He talks about how cannibalism happens in nature, whether it's, you know, in its environmental, like, um, population density and nutrition historically play a large part in it, especially in humans. Um, And also, it, it happens all the time still in animals, like population and nutrition density, Um, There's parenting. There's this funny quote that I would like to read you. Um, It's a little dirty, but it's okay. Um, It's uh, about, like, fish and the behavior of cannibalism in fish. It says, Mouse brooding is a common form of behavior in cichlids. Typically, it refers to a post-spawning behavior in which parents, usually females, hold the brood of fertilized eggs inside their mouths and till they hatch, and sometimes even after that. This provides the eggs and fry with a haven from predators, a point commonly portrayed in crowd-pleasing nature videos that depict young fish darting back into their parents' mouths at the first sign of danger. Conspicuously missing from these light-hearted reports is the fact that parents holding a mouthful of eggs usually eat a considerable portion of them, and sometimes <laughs> the entire brood. <laughs> also destined for the digital equivalent of the cutting room floor are shots showing male cichlids fertilizing the eggs in the females' mouths, always a difficult topic to explain during family TV time. So, I just, he just cracks me up. Um, So, there's also a lot of, like, eat or be eaten. That's another reason for cannibalism. Like, if you're around a bunch of other little, like, tadpoles, the faster you grow, the faster you can leave the pond, the faster you, you know, the less likely you are to be eaten. So, it's eat or be eaten. Um, It's survival of the fittest. Like, shark pups are likely to eat all the other siblings in 
inside the um, embryo sac, uh, there's a chapter on sex cannibalism, which sounds really gross, but it's more like creatures who eat their mates. Uh, there's cannibalism in dinosaurs. My favorite chapter, surprising no one, was called Weird Cannibalism. Um, there's <laughs> cannibalism in the Bible. Like, the whole, like, this is my body and drink of this, you know, does that mean literally mm. or figuratively? There's a discussion about that. Um, there's everyone's favorite party, the Donner Party. Donner, party <laughs> of 12. Um, there's a chapter called Eating People is Bad, which if you watch that X-Files episode about the poultry farm, you know. Um, and there's also a chapter called Eating People is Good. Uh, there is a chapter about how body parts are used in me- medicine, like uh, tons and tons of historic artifacts and tombs were destroyed in Egypt because people used to loot um, crypts to get mummies because they would they said that like grinding mummies up into powder like had great medicinal use. Um, so we lost all this history because of crazy people. Um, there's, of course, it's just like a chapter out of Goop. Uh, there's a chapter about women eating their placenta after, you know, birth. Um, and there's recipes, in case you're interested. Um, there's a chapter about mad cow disease. And then there's the future, which is, you know, basically a couple of environmental... We're a couple of environmental missteps away from eating people again. Like, the road is not that far from being nonfiction. So... I could go on and on and on about it, but I'm going to stop there. Um, again, it's called <laughs> Cannibalism, A Perfectly Natural History by Bill Shute. And uh, that was the most fun that I've had in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that was like just you living into your purpose. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go on and talk about our next sponsor so that we can all recover for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> This week, uh, we're taking the second sponsorship spot to direct you lovely listeners to a giveaway that's happening on Book Riot. It's being hosted by Viking Books, uh, and this is for – you get two books if you are one of the 10 winners. Uh, The – Featured book is The One-Eyed Man by Ron Curry. Uh, It's about a man named Kay whose tragic past has left him unable to grasp metaphors, so he has to plow through life headlong, living literally, until a surprising turn of events lands him in a starring role in a new reality show. Together with Claire, a grocery store clerk with a sharp tongue and a yearning for celebrity, he travels the country ruffling feathers and gaining fame at the intersection of politics and entertainment and finding out the hard way that the world will fight viciously to preserve its self-delusions. You can win The One-Eyed Man along with Ron Curry's previous novel, Everything Matters, uh, by entering through March 7th. Go to bookriot.com slash curry giveaway. That's C-U-R-R-I-E giveaway to enter. And you'll be uh, crossing your fingers to win The One-Eyed Man and Everything Matters, both by Ron Curry. Do it. He's awesome. I just love this concept of like, you just have to take everything. Like, what would life be like if you had to take everything literally? <laughs> like cannibalism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you said that there was a chapter on weird cannibalism, I was like, isn't that just a, not an oxymoron, but whatever, like, isn't it a double? Redundant? S- yes. Redundant. <laughs> words are hard. Um, but then I was like, but I don't want to imply value judgment about cannibalism. But maybe I do want to imply value. I like sat over here and had a whole existential crisis. Listen, you don't want to get involved in cannibal shaming. Okay. <laughs> I don't <laughs> sit on your emails, people. I don't need that. <laughs> 
Uh, my next pick this week is from the backlist, but it's having a bit of a cultural resurgence right now. And it's my first time reading this book. It's called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit. Uh, she originally published it in 2004 uh, during George W. Bush's administration and the invasion of Iraq when at the, you know, the height of, at the time, that was a very heated political moment. There was a lot of activism taking place and a lot of concern for the country. Uh, and she has republished it. It's a third edition that came out in 2015 that has a new material. Now, because the new edition came out in 2015, it's not fully updated for where we are right now. However, that doesn't really matter. Uh, this is an incredible small little book um, about sort of the fact that activism is rooted in hope uh, and that when you're like in the moment it can feel like things like all the things that we're working against are very difficult. It's like forces of darkness. Uh, but that's, you know, hope in the dark is a, the reminder that the whole point of doing this is not that it's all dark and will be all dark forever. Um, and she says a few things, even just in the introduction that I wanted to call out. I don't want to spoil all the goodness of this for you, but um, if you are finding yourself more politically active than you've previously been, if you're finding yourself more concerned for the state of the world uh, than you've previously been or than you would like to be, uh, and you're casting about for how to feel okay about moving forward, uh, this this book has really been useful for me. And it had a resurgence, like it hit Amazon's bestseller list right after the election. Um, so I'm certainly not alone in that. But she says uh, in one point that it's important to say what hope is not. It is not the belief that everything was, is, or will be fine. The evidence is all around us of tremendous suffering and tremendous destruction. The hope I'm interested in is about broad perspectives with specific possibilities, ones that invite or demand that we act. And then a little bit later on in that same section, she says, hope locates itself in the premises that we don't know what will happen and that in the spaciousness of uncertainty is room to act. Uh, and I just find that to be such a a timely message right now that resistance and activism and struggle are acts of hope. They're grounded in the belief that things can get better, uh, not that they'll get better on their own, not that everything will work out okay if we just chill, um, but that things can get better and that that is why we are working. Uh, and I think everybody who's involved in uh, in this resistance in any way would benefit from reading the book. Um, it also dovetails nicely with something that I was going to address, so I'll address it anyway. Um, that occasionally, I think especially from maybe newer listeners, we get tweets or emails requesting that we not talk about politics on the podcast or that we not talk about politics on Book Riot or that we don't put it in our newsletters. And those of you who have been listening for a while, like this is nothing new to you. And you know, that's kind of how we do things. But um, there are new people all the time because happily the site and our podcasts are growing. And I do want to address that it's core to how Book Riot functions to believe that well, we talk about all the ways that books and being readers touch our lives. And we are political in, uh, individuals. Uh, people's lives are all political, whether you like that or not. Uh, it's the truth. And the books that we read affect how we think about the world. How we think about the world affects the books that we choose. And Liberty and I on this show are two individuals. You don't have to agree with all of our politics. We don't expect you to. You don't have to agree with all of our book picks about anything. We don't expect you to. We're just two people who have opinions and who have preferences. And uh, if you don't like that politics creeps in, if you think that books should be apolitical, this is probably just not the place uh, for you. And that's okay. Um, but 
your angry tweets and emails about the fact that we talk about politics aren't going to change that. This is kind of central to how we do things and one of the core missions of Book Riot to support social justice. Um, So the book is called Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, uh, and I hope you'll check it out. I don't have a segue. Yeah, there's not really a good one. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. um, So my last pick is called The Dime by Kathleen Kent. I love Kathleen Kent. Uh, she writes historical fiction, mostly. Uh, I really enjoyed The Heretic's Daughter and The Outcasts. She has done a complete 180, and her new book, The Dime, is a gritty present-day crime novel. Um, I actually I read this right after finishing all four seasons of The Killing, um, so it was perfect, like more buddy cop crime stuff. Um, the, the Have you seen The Killing? No. Like... I really enjoyed it, despite the fact that there are so many huge plot issues, and they are terrible cops. They are so bad at being cops. Like, (laughs) yeah, if you couldn't already tell, watching television with me is a nightmare. Like, my boyfriend (laughs) should get a medal, because I'm just like, that that wouldn't happen. That's not real. They don't do it. And he's like, it's television. But I, I don't know. Anyway, back to the book. So, it is about... A cop named Betty Rizik. She is a tough-as-nails Brooklyn detective. She's a redhead. She moves to Dallas with her girlfriend and quickly learns that crime and police officers are both a whole different animal down there. Um, And so she's now working uh, with the DEA. She's working a drug bust. It's her first stakeout, and it goes horribly wrong, leaving a lot of corpses. Um, They were investigating the Mexican cartel, Things go terribly, terribly wrong. And it makes an already difficult situation harder for her because a lot of her uh, co-workers are sexist and homophobic and they won't cut her any slack and they're just making things so hard for her. I am going to stop there, though, because I did not read a synopsis of this book before I read it. um, And I read the synopsis after and it gives too much away. I was so delighted when I was reading this book because halfway through... It goes in a completely different direction that I had no idea was coming. And it's fantastic. Like I said, it's just this really awesome, gritty crime novel. There was some Shades of Beat the Reaper, um, if you've read that, by Josh Bazell. There was a little bit of that going on that I loved. Um, I hope there's more in this series. It's fantastic. You can read it in a second. It's called The Dime by Kathleen Kent. Woohoo! Yeah! Uh, And because it is Galentine's Day when we're recording, I want to do a random recommendation for a book that was one of my favorites a couple years back. It's called She Matters, A Life in Friendships by Susanna Sonnenberg. Uh, Each... It's a collection of essays, and each one is about a different relationship with a woman that was central to Sonnenberg's life. Uh, And it's just so honest, which I really love. She talks about friendships that were formative to her, friendships that she screwed up. And in the, at least in the context of the essays, she owns the ways that she was responsible for screwing the friendship up. And it's hard to like, to look at yourself that way after a friendship has ended and to really acknowledge that at least you, you were at least part of the problem. Uh, she talks about the ones that worked really beautifully at perfect, at, you know, certain times in her life and how and why those happened. It's very vulnerable, open writing. And, uh, and she gets to like sort of that magic that happens when the right friendship is in your life at the right time, but also 
what happens when the hole is left there after a friendship that was meaningful has ended or when you're trying to salvage a friendship when you think that you might have hurt someone. Uh, it's just so, so good. I've given it to a bunch of girlfriends as a gift. I'm probably going to quote from it if I get all schmoopy at Valentine's Day dinner tonight. Uh, but if you're looking for just something to reflect on the wonderful relationships uh, in your life or a good gift for a girlfriend or for your mom or your aunt or uh, your therapist, I don't know. Um, I can't recommend it enough. I really, really love this book and it's time to to bring it out and give it another round of recommendations. So that's She Matters, A Life and Friendships by Susanna Sonnenberg. Yay. Woohoo. Okay. Those are new books. What are you going to read now? I'm kind of going back and forth between Howl's Moving Castle, which somehow escaped me as a child. It came out when I was 10 and I don't know, I never read it. Um, and everyone always raves about it. And so two of my friends read it last week and they're like, you must love this. And I was like, I haven't read it. So I bought it. I haven't read it either. Yeah. Jen is a huge fan apparently, which I didn't realize until after. Um, I bought a copy and the, the girl who sold it to me, she was like, oh, just so you know, it's nothing like the movie. I was like, there's a movie. Like, I don't know. I have no idea how all of this, I missed it. Um, but between chapters, I am reading the new Celeste. Ing. Oh, jealousy! Little fires everywhere, which is about a woman and her daughter who move to a town um, and make friends with the neighbors, but the woman has a secret and things are going to happen. It's really, really oh, good. I'm uh, so jealous. What are you reading? I think that I'm going to start Illusion of Justice Inside Making a Murderer and America's Broken System by Jerome F. Buting. About this time last year, I and like everyone else in the country were plastered to my Netflix binge of Making a Murderer. And uh, Jerome Buting was Stephen Avery's defense counsel uh, in the case against him. Uh, that ultimately he ended up in prison. He lost the case and he ended up in prison. Uh, and Spoiler! And, well, <laughs> well, I mean, if you've seen Making a Murderer, uh, then you know that there are lots of questions raised about whether justice was actually carried out there. And if not, what sort of the systematic... Uh, skullduggery was that was going on uh, and Buting is passionate throughout that Netflix series uh, that this is not justice what we're seeing in the show I did not know that he had a book coming out I was just going through my mail the other day and I was like oh okay uh, so I'm interested in that and what and what he has to say I remember thinking he was you know a smart interesting guy um, trying to take apart the pieces of that case so I'm going to give that a shot they've now actually I just need- been touring together he and the other defense lawyer They've, oh, really? They do events. Yeah, they're going to be at Word in Jersey City. Oh, I just got an email about it. That would be fascinating. Yeah. I've heard it's uh, quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to read that if I can hold myself back from binging through season two of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. I watched the first one and the hamster thing almost killed me. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't started it yet, but I like I Amanda just got turned on to the show and I mentioned to her like season two is out and she was texting me non-spoilers about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got to catch up. That also seems like an appropriate activity for Valentine's Day. So who knows? True. But hopefully I'll read some books. That is our show this week. <laughs> In all <laughs> its esoteric glory. <laughs> oh, what a show it was. <laughs> Thank you to our sponsors, The Clairvoyance by Karen Brown. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. So you can find it wherever books are sold. Don't forget to go to bookriot.com slash curry giveaway to enter to win The One-Eyed Man and Everything Matters by Ron Curry. That's open through March 7th. Uh, if you have thoughts or questions for us, 
us, you can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. Talk to us on Twitter. I'm Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. Liberty is Miss Liberty. If you've got a minute, you want to rate or review the show on iTunes to help other folks who are looking for a bookish podcast find their way to us, we would be most appreciative. And a big, big thank you to all of you who have already done that. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books out today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And I just want to say happy Valentine's Day. We love you. Rebecca, I love you. Oh, I love you, Lib. Happy Galentine's. Happy Galentine's Day. <laughs> and in the meantime, happy don't eat reading. People. What? <laughs> happy also reading. don't eat people. <laughs> Number one, don't eat people. And then number two, happy reading. (laughs) Bye. Bye.